Hey, and welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. We are a church that is for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We are passionate about helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we would love for you to check out our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. There you can find ways to connect with us and see what's happening at Crosspoint. Now, let's listen to this week's Sunday message. This isn't just a prop, right? I'll be reading from the Bible. I put it here so it's a little easier for me. I don't have to turn pages. But this is a reminder that we uh, establish what we say here. And this is accessible to all of us. There's no one who uh, can read, cannot learn, take hold of what the Scripture says and apply it to their lives. Because you see, the scriptures have been written in a very specific way, in a way that every one of us can understand. The clear word of God is simple. And uh, I want to emphasize that. Sometimes, you know, you can hear pastors and preachers preach, and they bring in all this other information that makes it sound like you have to study for hours and years to get a handle on what the Bible is saying. The reality is, is, if you read this regularly, you can get a handle on what the Bible is saying. And you don't have to go to Bible school for that. Yeah, there is some training that goes into having a broad knowledge so that when you encounter a variety of different experiences, you have the foundation to meet those experiences. But you and I know that if we faithfully read, we can learn. And so... This is here as a reminder that what I say to you is rooted here. And if in your reading you come across something, you say, I'm not sure that Jim got it right. That's all right. Come and talk to me. Because maybe I didn't. And I'm open to learn and to grow. And every one of us has a different perspective on what the Bible says. And sometimes there's a different perspective on what the Bible says between translations. I am going to use this, Brenda. So Brenda used a verse this morning, Psalm 25, verse 12. Who is it that fears the Lord? How's the rest of it go? He will instruct him in the ways he should choose. Okay, that's the version she read this morning. Then another translation, this is the NIV, an older version of the NIV, by the way. It says something like this. Who is he that fears the Lord? The Lord will instruct him in the, what has been cho- uh, in the way that has been chosen for him. So one is choosing. The Lord instructs him in the way he should choose. And the other one is in the ways that have been chosen for him. They have different emphasis. They actually mean the same thing. They can be t- interpreted exactly the same way. But the reality is, is that one translator saw it one way. Another translator saw it another way. And you need to read the Bible with an awareness that whoever translated the Bible had an opinion. And they translated the Bible that way. And so we need to be wise in reading. And we need to challenge each other. We need to be aware that there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. I got to say, following three good preachers in the book of Ruth left me with a challenge. What was left to be said? I mean, Delaney knocked it out of the park. 
when she talked about Ruth chapter 1 and how in that chapter God showed himself faithful. He was leading the process. And although Ruth and Naomi had had a very rough relationship in terms of losses and so on, the reality was that there was evidence that God was at work in that. And then Amanda came along and she took chapter 2 and talked about the generosity of God and how it was evident in Ruth and in her relationship with Naomi and Boaz in his relationship to Ruth. And then last week, well, Micah came and he again opened up how having a clear vision brings hope and brings abundance. And so I went to chapter 4, which I'm stuck with. No, not really. I came to chapter 4 and I said, Lord, where do you want me to go? So if you remember the slide, this slide from last week, it said something different. I changed it. Redeeming love, still this theme. But I want to talk about the story of Ruth is the story of God. In some ways, God invites us to be in his story. And this story that Ruth is Ruth's is that. Now, I want to start off with these words from about the story of God. It's pretty simple. Back in Genesis chapter 3, remember the fall? God had created everything. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve made a mistake. They didn't make a mistake. They made a choice to eat the fruit that was forbidden. And in the face of that failure, God comes along in verse 15, and he talks about the fact that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of a serpent. It was the first time that we have in scriptures where God speaks to the issue that he is going to save. And then you go on to chapter 12, and you realize that God not only made it through Eve, but then he chose a specific nation, the one that was going to come from Abraham. And so when you read the calling of Abraham, the last verses of that, and all the nations of the world, or all the people of the world, will be blessed through you. And then you move forward into uh, Genesis chapter 49. And there it talks to, so, yeah, Genesis 49. What happened here? This is Jacob. And Jacob is on his deathbed, and he is prophesying over his 12 kids. And as he's prophesying over them, he comes to Judah. And he says, and the scepter of rulership will not depart from his feet, between his feet. And so you see God is planning, he's preparing the way for Jesus. You move forward from that. I didn't put it up there, but if you read the story of David, you get the sense that God not only chose Judah, but then he focused in on David. And he says, David, you're the king. You're a man after my own heart. There will always be someone from your family who rules. And of course, you have the Isaiah 7, 14, where it talks about Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin will give birth to a son, and you will name him Emmanuel. And we know that's Jesus. You see, these are all indicators of how God was working throughout history. And of course, then Jesus comes along, and he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. You see, the plan of God always has a destination. That destination is the salvation of the world. And so Jesus made that declaration. That's, uh, by the way, it's not up there, but that's Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And then you get uh, Acts 28, 31. 
I don't know if you've ever read the whole book of Acts. Most of us stop when it starts to get a little bit boring. But if you read right through to the end, there is no conclusion to this book. All it says is that you have Paul. He's there in Rome. He has his own home now. And for a couple years, it says for two years, he welcomed anyone into his home. And he was preaching about the kingdom of God. And that's the closing line. And the story will go on through his church. <clears throat> I got to tell you, this morning during worship, God was speaking through a number of those songs. Some of the songs I didn't know, so I just was reflecting on what they were saying and realized that, yeah, there's more. So a couple of the verses that I referred to in this, on this slide that aren't up there was because of the worship this morning. So what about you? When you're singing the songs earlier this morning, were you just singing them because you enjoyed it? Or were you meditating on them and allowing the words to become prayers in your heart? Because you see, that's what really worship is about. Our singing is more than just songs. It's an opportunity to commune with God. And it's an opportunity for the people of God, you and I, who are gathered here collectively to join in and sing these songs in unison. Not in unison in terms of our voices together, because not all our voices are that good. But because our hearts are in unity, we're singing these songs together. And you know what it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them. God is amongst us. I don't know about you, but as we were singing some of those songs, I was holding out my hand. And as I was holding out my hands, I could just sense that God was somehow being present with me. So, the story of God. But what about the story of Ruth? The story of Ruth doesn't look like the story of God on the surface. But when we start looking inside it, then we start to see patterns that are evident. So, the story or the context for the story of Ruth. So, I'm going to take Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. This is sort of a strange verse, but... Matthew 1, verse 5 says this. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And if you take a look at the end of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, near the end, you have the same pattern read there. These verses, at the end of Ruth and from Matthew chapter 1, show us how Ruth's story into the story of God. We want to talk about that a little bit. Ruth chapter 1, first verse, during the days of the judges, it starts off with that. And if you remember what Delaney had to say back in the day, she talked about how the time of the judges was a time when there was no order. It was a time where people did what they thought was right in their own hearts. Feels a little bit like today sometimes, doesn't it? And then finally, Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and, became, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So why do I choose these three verses to give context to Ruth's story? Well, first of all, if you notice in Matthew chapter 1, it talks about the fact that Boaz's mother was Rahab. Do you remember who Rahab was? 
Joshua, Israel, they're moving in. Joshua sends two spies ahead to spy out the land to see what they were going to face in battle. They get to Jericho. And while they're there, they move into the city and they go to Rahab, the prostitute's house. And she protects them. And she makes a deal that her family would be saved because of her help. This is Boaz's mom. Catch that? Ruth's mother-in-law. Why do you think Boaz was so aware of Ruth and kind to her, caring about her throughout the story? Could it be that because his mom was an outsider to Israel, she maybe was held at arm's length because of her background, that Boaz was sensitive to that? And so he became aware of her. He knew her character. Why do I choose the passage about, from Judges about Eglon? Well, this is possibly, probably, you notice there's some doubt in that statement. This is possibly the time of Ruth. When Elimelech and Naomi, because of a famine, decide to go to Moab. And they became, in a sense, economic migrants. Things were so bad in their home country that they needed to move. Moab was that place in, is, in the Israeli area, Middle Eastern area, that was well known for uh, its fertility. You remember the Abraham and Lot? They're there and Lot wants to go on his own and Abraham's, they're standing at some place where they can look around and Lot looks and he says, it looks down towards the area, it's now Moab. He looked down that way and he saw that it was very fertile. And he says, I'm going to go down that way. This was Moab. Elimelech, Naomi, and their boys, they went down to Moab because it was fertile. It was a place where they could get survive. One of the things I want to take, have you take note of is nowhere in this book is anyone condemned for the choices they made. Elimelech, Naomi, it's just a fact. They were dealing with a famine. They will move to Moab. They're there. We don't know how long. Well, we know they're there at least 10 years because it says that Elimelech died. We don't know if he died as soon as they got there or after a season. But then her boys got married and they were there about 10 years. You see, Eglon controlled Israel for 18 years. And then the boys pass away. And Naomi is left uh, in a difficult place. You see, in the Middle Eastern culture, women were dependent on the men for their safety. And they were dependent on the family. If their husband passed away, the family was instructed to take care of them. So here she is in a foreign country. Her husband has passed. She's dependent on her boys, who both have gotten married. And what happens? They pass away. And now Naomi has no support system. She has no way of engaging or being sustained. And that's why she instructed her daughter-in-laws to go back to their homes. They were in the same situation. They needed the support. Opa, Opa made the choice. She went back 
to be with her parents. But Ruth, because of relational connectedness with her mother-in-law, we don't know what her family circumstances were, but she made a choice to go back with Ruth. One of the things that strikes me is that Elimelech and Ruth, or Naomi probably had a pretty good relationship, pretty good family life. You think about it. Their boys married these two Moabite women who both were deeply committed, committed to Ruth. The girls made two different choices. Ruth made choice to go with her. But we know that Ruth is a woman of outstanding character. So her husband probably was a pretty sharp guy too to attract her attention and calling. She goes back and we know through the last couple weeks she comes back to Israel. She is depressed having lost her family and she calls her people say, is this Naomi coming home? And she goes, don't call me Naomi. I'm Mara. I'm bitter. And yet, you can start to see God working. Because Ruth does whatever she needs to do to survive. And so, she gets up one day and she says, Naomi, we don't have any food. i got to go out and do some gleaning. She knew that that was the way they did it. That was part of the culture in those days. And so, she goes out and she randomly chooses a field and she, she starts gleaning. And it's in that context that she meets Boaz. And Boaz takes note of her. And then he finds out who she is. And she, he's heard the stories about this young woman who has come back with her mother-in-law. And who is supporting her. And being faithful to her. And all of that draws Boaz's attention. And Boaz talks to her. And he encourages her to stay with his crew. As they move through the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. Stay with them. And... Follow with my crew. A little later, he uh, invites her to come over and have a meal. He shares a meal with her. And you can just see an awareness of her. Now, some of the people, sometimes we get caught up in the Western idea of what romanticism is. Romance. And we impose that on the text. But the reality is, in the Middle East... It wasn't that way at all. Often, marriages were arranged. Often, it was convenience. And so, you have Boaz, who is aware of Ruth, and, but he is treating her well, but it's not a courtship in that sense. But when Naomi finds out who Boaz is, who she's been working, or, or Ruth has been working, she starts to see the hand of God, and she awakens. And this is where Micah talked about new vision. Because now she can see that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He's not the only kinsman redeemer in the family, but he is the one that has been drawn to their attention by God. And so when Naomi and Ruth's period of mourning has ended, you sometimes wonder, why did they wait so long for Ruth to be introduced to Boaz in a very direct way? Part of it was because in the Jewish culture, 
morning was set up to be about a year long. And so from the death of her husband to the end of the wheat harvest when Ruth was uh, instructed by Naomi to step forward and make a request of Boaz, that was probably the length of their uh, mourning. And so Ruth follows the instruction of Naomi. She presents herself to, to uh, Boaz, and Boaz takes up the responsibility that is his, the responsibility of being the kinsman redeemer. And in doing so, we get to chapter 4. Chapter 4, he moves very quickly to fulfill the uh, requirements of kinsman redeemer. He goes into town, Bethlehem, hometown. He gets in there, and he goes to the city gate. And at the city gate, he calls together a bunch of elders. Now, what's so significant about a city gate? Well, Brenda and I spent some time. Brenda's brother was in West Africa for a bit. And so we went to West Africa, Burkina Faso, to see him. And while we were there, we went to a couple of villages. And as we talked with people and so on, some of the habits of those villages became clear. And they directly relate to this because it's the same issue in the Middle East. These small villages are very contained. If you've come from small town Alberta, where everybody knows everybody else, if you're a stranger coming in, what happens? Everyone knows it, right? And everyone questions their intention and purpose. City Gate in Middle East was the same way. It was the place where people, visitors came in, and the elders of the community were there to greet new people and to assess who they were. They were also the place, because they gathered there, it was sort of a protection thing, a security thing. They were also there as the elders who would deal with the different issues that were happening in the community. Whether there was conflicts in the community, make decisions about the sale of properties, those sorts of things happened at the city gate. And so that's where Boaz goes, because he knows the elders are there. And then the other kinsman redeemer comes along, and Boaz invites him to have a conversation. And in that conversation, Boaz presents the need of the family, Naomi's family, to sell their land. And the guy is quite willing to expand his holdings, and so he says, yes, I'll be happy to do that. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, it talks about the requirement in the family if, you, if a, two brothers are living together, which they did in those days, families lived together, and if the, uh, one of the brothers died, the other brother was to take the widow and have a child with her so that the name of that brother would continue on in Israel. It was also a way of protecting the land. In Israel, land was very important. It still is today. And it was sort of a, a way of maintaining a support and protection of the widow, but also was a way of keeping the land uh, in the family. And that was necessary because in those days, the land was the primary way of economic survival. When this gentleman found out that he would have to marry Ruth as a part of that development or that cultural requirement, he goes, hold on, that would threaten my own inheritances 
And so he stepped back and Boaz took up the responsibility. He says, I'm willing to do that. And so the result was, is that in stepping forward, Boaz was fulfilling the requirements of the culture. And he was putting himself in the place to be Ruth's husband. Of course, it goes on to say that, yeah, they did have a boy. They named him Bo, uh, Obed. Naomi was found security in the household of Boaz. And Ruth found security in the household of Boaz. But they also became, it became evident that they were a part of the story of God. The story of God is in the background all the way through Ruth. Every time you think that things are just happening uh, uh, by accident, somehow the hand of God is shaping it. Somehow the hand of God is there working. To what extent we believe in the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how those two interplay, one of the things that's clear is that God is always at work. And it is true not only for Ruth's story, but it's true for our story. Can you go to the next slide, please? There it is. It's a subset. Ruth's story is a subset of God's story. So God's story is everybody's story. And this is from Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. In this story, Paul is speaking. He's in Athens, and he's talking to the Athenians about the God. They had a God and an altar to the unknown God, and so he was telling them about the God that he knows. And in that conversation, he makes this statement. From one man, God made all the nations of the world. I'm going to get it. He created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand where they should. Uh, I'm going to get it so I can get it right. Too many translations in my head. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel the way towards him. And find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Why is this? This is talking about nations. In the time that Paul was writing, this is talking about the Roman nation, Greece, Middle East, specific countries. But this is true today. From one man, he made all the nations of the earth. And all the nations of the earth can include Canada. Do you realize that? And why did he create Canada, allow it to be created? It would be so that when people seek for God, they might find him. That they would long after God. There's something about the context of nations and land that is important. That we need to recognize that God places people collectively as a group, creating a nation for a specific purpose, which is about finding him. Now... We are followers of Jesus. And God has placed us in different places, in different communities. The scripture verse that Brenda shared at the beginning of the service from Psalm 40, uh, 25, Psalm 25. Who is it that fears the Lord? 
He's the one that the Lord guides in choosing what is right or choosing the way for him, directing him in the choice. And so in all of our lives, we've made choices over the years that have brought us to specific places, specific times, because he knows the exact times and places where these nations should be. And in some ways, he knows the exact times and places where you are. And there is a purpose for that. One of them is you have gathered here in this group, and this is a place where you can learn about God in a very specific way that is related to who you are. Because these people have become your friends. They become your community of faith. And so because of that, there's something about you being here that is about you growing in relationship to God. But I'm going to push it a step farther. If God knows the exact times and places where you should live, is that also true about your neighbors? Does he know the exact times and places where they should live so that they might find Jesus? And if that's the case, and you're living next door to them, what does that mean for you? It means that you are becoming a part of God's story, God's intention, his longing for the world around us. You see, God is at work always around us. We have to open our eyes so that we can see what is happening. One of the ways that we have uh, learned in ourselves, Brenda and I, as we have moved into communities, one of the things we do is we get to know the neighbors. You probably do the same thing. But we intentionally, in getting to know them, as we get comfortable with them, we start to do a little fishing. Brenda's very good at fishing. Not in terms of catching real fish. She holds that at arm's length. But in terms of throwing out a line that has a potential of quickening someone who is spiritually curious. That's the kind of fishing I'm talking about. Now, being a pastor, that's one of the easy ones, right? Oh, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, there's the line. But for you, it might be different. It might be something as simple as, as you're talking with them and they share something out of their lives that you can relate to, you can say, yeah, I've experienced something similar to that and really have had a sense of God helping me. If they're spiritually curious, they're going to pick up on that, aren't they? If they aren't, they're just going to ignore it. <clears throat> We've experienced that lots of times. We had a neighbor. She was, her life was uh, complicated, but it was complicated by cancer. And we thought there might be a way to come alongside her and support her and we've tried the best we've tried the best we could with that and a number of times we threw out lines just to see if there was a spiritual awareness a hunger and she ignored it every time and yet we have a couple neighbors a couple doors down walk by our house on a regular basis and so we got to know them a little bit and it didn't take very long to find out that there was a spiritual awareness, a hunger in their hearts. You see, this is part of engaging in the story of God. 
your story, the minute you step in to relationship with him, you become part of his story. And as a body of believers, scripture says that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. In other words, as we move forward intentionally to fulfill God's purposes for us in this area of the city, the opportunities will open up and God will show us how to reach into those areas. And the consequence of that will be that there will be many people who are awakened to their need of salvation. I came across this quote, and it's sort of a question. It goes like this. You can count the apples on a tree, but who can count the apples in a seed? So I have a bunch of names written under there in the parentheses. Can you see them? There's this guy, Kendall, way back in the 1800s, 1858 in Boston. He was a Sunday school teacher. And as a Sunday school teacher, he had a real burden for the young men that were in his Sunday school class. He had one particular guy that was burdened him. The guy seemed disinterested in the gospel. And so he pursued him. So much so that he decided to corner him at work one day. So he went to the little shoe shop where this man was working. And he talked to him there and he shared the gospel with him again and shared his concerns for his soul. And this man became a follower of Jesus. D.L. Moody. Somebody maybe has heard that name. So D.L. Moody becomes a follower of Jesus. He grows in his faith and he becomes a significant evangelist. In the process of his evangelism, he uh, had a young man named Chapman come to one of his services. And Chapman became a follower of Jesus. As he grew in his faith, he became an evangelist. Hear the theme? He became an evangelist, and so he got preaching, and one day, a professional baseball player came in. He has a day off from uh, the sport, and so he decided to go hear Chapman preach, and he became a follower of Jesus, Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday went on to grow in his faith, and he became an evangelist. And through his ministry, a gentleman named Ham became a follower of Jesus. And Ham became an evangelist. And through his ministry, Billy Graham became a Christian. It started with a Sunday school teacher who was not an evangelist in the sense of the Billy at the end or all the guys in between. But he was a man whose heart was concerned for the salvation of these boys that he was in relationship with. You see, you can count the apples on a tree, but you can't count the apples in a seed. And that's what I want you to be, to be aware of. We are not all called to be evangelists, but we are called to be people who plant seeds. That's God's plan. And you can spread the seeds everywhere. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed? The guy takes and he's walking out in the field and he's throwing the seeds here and he's throwing the seeds there. Some falls on rocky ground, some th falls amongst the thorns. 
some amongst the weeds, but some fell on fallow ground, and it produced 60-fold, 100-fold. We've sometimes taken that uh, parable and said, well, maybe 25% of the people have seeds planted in their hearts. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to be faithful in spreading the seed. You don't know which plant is going to survive. You don't know which one is going to produce 100-fold or 60-fold or be swallowed up by the birds. But this you do know. If you're faithful in taking and revealing the heart of God that has touched your heart, you're planting a seed. And it doesn't have to be the gospel in the sense of the Roman road, four spiritual laws. Those things are good tools. But it can be as simple as God worked in my family in this way. And when it relates to the person who hears that story, it becomes a seed that starts to take root. And when it takes root, it starts to grow. And people are drawn to Jesus through the simple planting of seeds. Not by the overwhelming knowledge of the Bible. The overwhelming knowledge of the Bible, those are, that's for us who are mature. Those are us who are involved in mentoring and caring and helping and leading forward the body of Christ. But you and I who are living in the neighborhood, what we're doing is sharing the simple works of Jesus. See, Ruth's story ended up with Jesus in it. Kendall's story ended up with Billy Graham. Your story can have a similar impact. There's a little detail I don't want to go back to. I missed earlier and I want to capture it. I read from Matthew chapter 1 and it's the genealogy of Jesus. You need to know that there are only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Every one of them was an outsider. Tara, uh, Tamara, and then there was Rahab, and then Ruth, and Bathsheba. They're the only ones mentioned. But they're the ones that were captured in the story of God that led to Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you're an insider or an outsider. If God gets hold of your life, you can be involved in the story of God. And your story becomes his story. And that's what we want for every one of you. We want to be a place where his story is evident amongst us. And that we can share how God is at work in our lives and encourage each other and call each other on in life. That's what the body of Christ is about. That's what this community of faith is about. It's about a place where we can speak about what God is doing and how he is working. And in doing that, we start to hear the work of God around us. And I want to encourage you that you would be faithful to what God has already done in your life. And I have to tell you, it isn't just planting seeds in your neighborhood. It's planting seeds in each other. 
One of the verses that was read this morning during the prayer time was from Ephesians chapter 3. And in that verse, it talks about the fact that we come to understand the love of God, the heights, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God together with all the saints. You need to know that when you share your story with the people around you here, you're giving them another window into the heart of God. You're broadening our perspective and understanding of how God works. And you know what? Sometimes it's as simple as hearing someone's story here, and then you're on the street talking with a friend who is outside of this community, and they say something, and you say, you know what? Last Sunday I was talking with a friend, and they talked about how God met them in a very similar situation to yours. We have experienced it a number of times where people have shared their testimony and we have had the opportunity to draw people's attention to that who are outside the church. One of the pastors uh, in one of the churches we're at, he got up and he preached a sermon about his life and how God had worked in it and so on. I don't know how many times I referred to people from outside the church to say, you want to hear something that will encourage you? Why don't you go to this church website. Listen to this sermon. And they have come back and said, I listened and God spoke to me in it. I was encouraged by it. So you need to know that your story is important and for you to keep it to yourself is not a good idea. Matter of fact, it is pretty important that you share your stories with each other. One last verse. This is a tag on this nowhere in my notes. I can't find it. Problem is my Bible isn't marked up right. I'll give it to you the way it is. It says that this is in Malachi, the end of the Old Testament. Malachi writes that God is in heaven. And it says that those who feared the Lord were sharing the goodness of God with each other. Paraphrase, you'll have to find it. And uh, it says that God was listening listening to them sharing their testimonies. And then the next line is, he called one of the angels over and said, would you make a note of this, please? You need to know that you're sharing your lives, your testimonies of his goodness is an encouragement to him. If it doesn't encourage each other, it will certainly encourage God. And so I encourage you to allow your story to be God's story. To find places where he is at work in you. And acknowledge it. We don't know who wrote the book of Ruth. But I can tell you this. Whoever wrote the book of Ruth. Wrote down that story. Knew it well enough to convey it to us. But he also wrote it about a very difficult time. In Israel's history. And it was an indicator that even in the midst of a season where there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, God was still at work. And we might not feel like we have the government we deserve or the government we want or whatever it is. We might be disappointed in a lot of ways with the way our culture is moving and where it's going. But you need to understand that God is still at work. And we need to keep our eyes there. Not on what's happening around us. Because 
What God is doing is more important. And wherever I can join him, that brings me life. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, I want to thank you that you are a part of our lives. And that you, Lord, are present amongst us. I thank you, Lord, that you invite us to be a part of your purposes and intentions. That our stories can become your stories. They are your story. As we allow you to work and to shape us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we embrace this truth, that we would be your faithful servants in this world. And that we would see the opportunities around us to extend your kingdom wherever we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, and welcome back. Thanks for listening to this Sunday's message. We hope that we've helped you in your spiritual journey and that you're drawing closer to God. At Crosspoint, we gather on Sundays at 10 a.m. in Northeast Edmonton and throughout the week in something we love to call home groups. Home groups are encouraging and transformational communities for people just like you. We believe that the journey of faith is done together. So we hope that you'll connect with us at thecrosspointchurch.ca. Now, let me remind you of who you are. You are the people of God, called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are.